So um, Matthew is, has another teaching engagement, uh, and so wasn't available to come today. Uh, and, but we're blessed to have a whole team <laughs> of Episcopalians in this room. <laughs> and uh, I, I bet many of you know uh, Reverend Susan Achenklaas, uh and uh, Reverend Suzanne Guthrie. Um, and uh, I've gotten to know them over the last couple of years now really well and longer. Um, um, and such a pleasure. We've been in a group of uh, Jewish and Christian clergy and uh, learned lay people exploring our faiths together, which is um, what instigated us, uh, Matthew and I, wanting to teach this class uh, because we've already begun the exploration ourselves. So thank you for being here today. I'm going to speak first today uh, about a couple of things that uh, uh, came out of last uh, week's discussion about what is Messiah, Jesus as Messiah. There are a couple of chairs right leaning against the wall. Great. Hi, Steve. I'll just wait a second. It's okay. I have been on a, um, oh gosh, a, a sort of learning discovery. This is all, every week I, I'm putting stuff together that I presume scholars of first century uh, um, um, Hellenism and Christianity and Judaism already know, but it's, it's new to me. The more I listen to Matthew uh, teach last week, sparked all kinds of explorations for me. So I'm speaking to you certainly not as an expert, but as someone on my own journey of discovery right now in sh sharing with you how the categories, let me put it this way, I, like most of us, was raised on binary categories of Christianity and Judaism, right? And those categories have been reinforced uh, in every possible way for 2,000 years, right? Because it's been a competition. However, when you study for the first century and you realize that Jesus was a Jew and that the early Christians were not, were not, were, were in, the, in the family, the early Christians before they were called Christians. Remember, the Jews who thought of Jesus as the Messiah after his death and who composed the Gospels and who, uh, uh, that they weren't um, in those early decades they were Jews still. And that the idea, and, and again, one of the binary ideas that I've always operated with is that, well, Jesus died. The uh, redemption of the Jewish people didn't happen, right? The Roman oppression just continued. And therefore, the Jews rejected Jesus as a Messiah because there was no evidence that he was a Messiah. We've discussed that, and that is a common understanding. Well, I'm here to mess that up a little bit because I'm starting to understand, no, it's in the time there were just perhaps infinite shades of, um, of nuance. And certainly there wasn't a monolithic understanding among the Jews of what Messiah meant. 
over so and of what so remember that uh, uh, Matthew talked about how Jesus often is referred, refers to himself as son of God, son of man, Ben Adam, and that that appellation also occurs in the book of Daniel, which comes from the second century BC. Ben Adam, son of Adam. Now, in Hebrew, a Ben Adam means a human being. However, what I was reading about uh, um, that I want to share with you is that during this time, under the influence of Greek philosophy, there was an idea that there is, as it were, this world, the world of physical manifestation, and a world of pure idea, right? The little I know of Greek philosophy, uh, I mean it, it's like, was not interested as an undergraduate. Um, uh, but the idea, the idea that there's an ideal, an ideal concept, and then here, the material manifestations of that concept in all the variety and imperfection. That rings a bell, everybody? So, there's an idea that then comes into Judaism with Greek influence that the original Adam, A-D-A-M, known in Hebrew as the Adam Kadmon, the primordial Adam, was not the Adam of flesh and blood, but, but was a template of the, of the, of the ideal and that when it says that, in, now this is not necessarily what the Bible authors intended in Genesis. They are pre-Hellenistic. So when they say, and God created the human being in God's image, we don't know exactly what they mean, except that it's a sublime idea, right? And it's an idea that continues to animate us, because I love discussing what it means that every human being contains the divine image. It's such a sublime and elevating idea, you know. But under Greek, the influence of Greek philosophy, the idea started to develop that, hey, you know, in Genesis chapter 1, and this is not an idea alien to rabbinic Judaism. It's in, it's in rabbinic Judaism. And this is what was such an aha for me. Um, in Genesis chapter 1, you know that there are two creation stories in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, which is the orderly, on the first day God created, and it was good, and on the second day, that's chapter 1, and on the seventh day God rested. On the sixth day, God says, let us make Adam, let us make the human being in our image and in our form. Male and female, God created them. Which leads to a whole stream of, of, of rabbinic teachings that the first Adam, this primordial Adam, was androgynous was not male or female, was both, right? Because only in chapter 2, there's another story about a garden. And God forms Adam out of the clay and breathes the breath of life into it. Well, one stream of thought among Jews, under the influence of Greek thought, which they all were, is that the first Adam was a primordial Adam. In other words, not a flesh and blood Adam, not the one made out of clay. And that being a Ben Adam 
could have much more meaning than just a son of Adam, but could mean having some kind of embodied perfection. So, without belaboring this, because I'm no expert on it, um, uh, there was a, um, in the first century, there was a Jewish philosopher and teacher named Philo of Alexandria. Philo uh, wrote and taught in Greek. Do you remember that I said that in the first century, most Jews did not know Hebrew, other than as a language of study and prayer. They spoke Greek, or they spoke Aramaic, depending on where they were located. And in the Greek-speaking world, they spoke Greek. They read Greek translations of the Bible, and they were thoroughly influenced by Greek philosophy. And Philo was a great teacher, a Jewish teacher in Alexandria, Egypt, in the first century. He liked to talk about the original man uh, as being born in the image of God that has no participation in any corruptible or earth-like essence. Whereas the earthly man is made of loose material called a lump of clay. <laughs> the heavenly man, as the perfect image of the logos, the word of God. Logos means word, right? Among other things, yes. Okay. Um, is neither man nor woman, but an incorporeal intelligence, purely an idea. While the earthly man, who was created by God later, is perceptible to the senses and partakes of earthly qualities. Philo is evidently combining philosophy and Midrash, Plato and the rabbis, um, setting out from the duplicate <coughs> biblical account of Adam, as I described. Um, and uh, then there's this Midrash. Midrash is a rabbinic extrapolation, interpretation of a biblical verse. It says in Psalms, you have formed me be, be, after and before, is to be explained. This is a quote from an ancient Midrash. Before the first and after the last day of creation. For it is said, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, meaning the Spirit of the Messiah. The Spirit of Adam, <laughs> of whom it is said, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This contains the kernel of Philo's philosophical doctrine of the creation of the original man. From the pre-existing Adam, you get the idea that circulating in first century Judaism, to understand the followers of Jesus, to understand him as, an, as the ideal expression of God, who also was made flesh, is a possible reading of rabbinic thought. Do you follow what I'm saying? This is what I was going like, oh my gosh. It's not like they're saying Jesus is the son of God or is Ben Adam, and all the rabbis are saying, what, are you crazy? In the first century, this was within the realm of discourse. So, that was the, so that's kind of what my experience is right now. If you, it's kind of like if you, you read any history textbook, and they talk about, I don't know, the Whigs and the Tories. The, the Tories. You know, it's like, like they were two opposing sides and that's it. You know, 
And whereas if you're in the midst of the current events, like we are now, it's a mess, right? Not only is discourse happening all the time in all directions, but the same terms are being deployed by people who mean completely different things. Do do you know what I mean? That's human discourse. So if we can imagine a first century with that kind of messy discourse, where these pre-existing concepts are circulating around, it led me to realize, oh, then it probably, then there were, we know that there were, Christ, there were followers of Jesus, Jewish Christians in the first century worshiping in the same synagogues as rabbinic Jews. You know, maybe they were having good arguments. Maybe they hated each other's guts. I don't know, but they were all being Jews together even after these folks were saying Jesus is the Messiah. He's, it was a spiritual concept it, to be uh, the realized perfection in human form because it says God made the human being in God's image. Why wouldn't some people understand that to be? That in some mysterious way we are the ideal representative of God. and the, Right? We're the Messiah, right? So uh, I thought that was really cool. <laughs> I would say, and then we were starting to chat about this, that if there was a breaking point, and we can assume again that it wasn't like a um, clear line in the sand, but something that happened over a period of decades, it was probably, in my opinion, and I'll change it next week, it was <laughs> probably when the followers of Paul, it would be, wouldn't it? Right. Um, said that you can become a Christian without circumcision or following the mitzvot. Everybody know what mitzvot are? The Jewish behaviors and laws. That uh, because for Jews, the, for Jewish men, the mark of the circumcision is the mark of the covenant. And here was a way saying you can join this, this new covenant, not the old one, the new one, without undertaking these, these duties of Jewish life. So without becoming a Jew. And so now we're in territory where the rabbinic Jews couldn't go. Because the rabbinic Jews were completely committed to Jewish practice. That's how do you, what do Jews do? Mitzvahs. Right? Does that make sense, everybody? So I would say, but so the the aha for me was that um, it, it probably wasn't the idea that Jesus was the Messiah was probably not something that then the other Jews poo-pooed and said, oh yeah, how come we're not free from Rome? Because there were already spiritual understandings of what Messiah meant in the first century. I don't think there were, prior to the book of Daniel, the spiritual understandings of Messiah, prior to that, prior to the Greek influence, the Messiah was clearly an anointed one of God who was a leader of the Jewish people. That's what Mashiach means, right? Anointed leader. But with the influence of Greek thought and the separation of the spirit world and the world of, of, of physical world, uh, certainly that, bef- long before Jesus came along, that idea had begun to be spiritualized in certain circles in Judaism. Um, and the idea of a spiritual salvation was not so far-fetched and may not have been the cause of the split the way Mr. Rational, 20th century educated person uh, Jew makes it so simple. Of course, I want, I want evidence. 
right? That's not necessarily the way folks were thinking back then. Uh, and there was an incredible variety of belief. Do you want to add anything to those thoughts? <laughs> that was my big aha. Yeah. Can you the detail? Please. The reason they met on Sundays and it became the establishment is because on Saturdays, guess where they all were? They were in synagogue. And they were, they were celebrating Friday night and Sunday. So it's amazing. But Sunday became the time they said, all right, we'll meet then. <laughs> That's right. I never thought of that. that was, I got that in a history book about the first, set, the second century. Beautiful, um, Susan. I would add that weren't they in synagogue? You say no, they were in synagogue. When did they, Sunday become the Lord's Day? The disciples. They they they. Continued. Oh yeah, they were in That's synagogue. That's who I met. But it it evolved that Sunday became the Sabbath because. It was the third day that Jesus rose from the dead, and okay. so that became, became more established. Well, could it be the eighth day? Oh. And could, the eighth is day that, is the it, it, new it, it, time, like, the next time. Go why ahead. we have original sin? Because we needed a reason? Because we had a fact? Well, what? here we are. Did, and, and this, this would be great if we could actually oh, trace this. Yeah, we, Did we, Sunday become the day? because it was a day when they were all available, and then a whole mythology of it's the eighth day, it's the day of the resurrection, becomes the reason we do it on Sunday. That would be common human practice, right? Uh, uh, there's uh, a story I read, and you'll hear, you'll, there are many stories like this, and this is certainly, uh, which is about the, the oh, there's, there's Zen stories about it. I heard one about a lady who used to cut off the end of her roast before she put it in the oven. And someone said, why? She said, because my mother did it that way. And then someone talked to her mother and said, I had too small a pan. <laughs> and, and that's how traditions get started. And then you make up nice reasons about, but anyway, that's not to say, the, that's all to illuminate our lack of knowing of whether the activity came first for practical reasons and then got illuminated by teaching or the other way around. We don't know. That's really fun to think about. And it doesn't matter in terms of the practice. The practice becomes meaningful because of the meaning we then attach to it. Uh, that doesn't mean it's made up. It means that's what, we, that's what people do. But we don't know exactly why. Yeah. You correct me, please. But from that the same second century, first century history book that I read, um, and a couple of others, the reason Paul and, uh, wanted not, I mean, they actually argued about what they should include and not, that's what this fellow thought. And the reason was because Paul had all these Greeks and they were grown men and they did not want to be circumcised. Grown men, just what? So they, they had to bargain away another Jewish thing. And that was too hard. And some of the disciples said no. And the others said yes. And Paul, he said, look at all these people. And since we're a people who believe in the spirit of this thing, not exactly the pure law, so they went towards that. They went towards including more people who... I think Paul's words were too harsh. It's too harsh. Too harsh. <laughs> um, Circumcision. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, we so, can understand that. That's right. Man. So let's think about that in a variety of ways. I think historians know clearly that there were major debates and disputes That's amongst first-century followers of Jesus about whether all followers of Jesus needed to also observe all the Jewish laws, right? Yeah. We know this. Um, right. Who's James? 
who, who are the main proponents that you have to follow the Jewish laws in? Peter. Peter. Peter and James. And James. And James. Peter and James. Peter and James. And Paul and others. And Paul was more, who was raised in the rabbinical, he was a student of Gamaliel. Right. He was the one advocating a, a more open interpretation mm -hmm. of. But he was raised in Tarsus. No, 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 no. Paul, Paul of Tarsus, yes. Tarshish was a Greek-speaking yes. Jewish community. So he had that whole Greek idea. And he was also a Roman citizen Who's, at the um, same time. He yeah. had dual... Oh, okay, you need it. Dual passport. That's right. <laughs> okay. Yes. Dual passport, she said? Yes. They were all circumcised. Yeah, they were all circumcised. However, however, we have well attested that there were... Uh, you may not be familiar with the stories of Hillel where uh, uh, non-Jews approach him with questions. We know from both internal and external sources that there were a, was a category of the Jews called Yir'eh Hashem, which means God-fearers. Yes. They were people who had not formally entered the covenant but were very interested in participating in the Jewish community. Think of them as resident aliens or something like that, you know, in the Jewish community. There were many seekers hanging around. In fact, when you study the Psalms, for example, or you, they, there were courtyards in the temple for those God-fearers. You know, they, they wanted to come, they wanted, they wanted part of this action, but they hadn't become Jewish. Uh, so there was clearly a pool of seekers, uh, a population of seekers around the Mediterranean, around the Greek-speaking world, who were interested already in Judaism. This is attested historically. So they were a population that Jews were actively courting right, and welcoming because it says, be a light unto the nations. Right? In, 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 in those times, be a light unto the nations means bring the knowledge of the one God, the one true God, to the people. That's even why Christi the idea of spreading the gospel is not even a Christian concept. It precedes that. Gospel means good news. And it says in Isaiah, Man uh, Oh, how pleasing are the footsteps of the messenger bringing besorot tovot, good news, yeah. to, you know, now that didn't mean the good news of Jesus when it was written, it was centuries before Jesus, but the ideas expressed in Isaiah that our job is to bring the, the, the captives out of the dungeon and open the eyes of those whose eyes are blind is, is, has a spiritual connotation to it. So there were large numbers of people called Yirei Hashem, God-fearers, that if they don't have to get circumcised, well, that's a, I would say, to be crude, a great marketing decision. Um, uh, uh, but the idea that those people... The, the, if, I don't know, if, know enough about this, but the, followers of, the Jewish followers of Jesus and other Jews were, were addressing the same unchurched group of people. Does that make sense, everybody? Um, yes? Um, I was also told that the Christmas tree was also not part of anything until they wanted to uh, get converts from some of the, um, I guess they called them pagan religions, oh. where they actually had the tree, you know, especially in the winter, the evergreen tree was part of their of ceremony because it was the um, what what 
still lived in the middle of the winter. Right, so Susan, you're jumping ahead several centuries. Okay, by the time Christianity is already an imperial religion and is spreading both by force and by all other kinds of ways into everywhere. That comes many centuries later. So when did the Jews stop? So when did the Jews... Now, anyone of us who grew up in a, you know, not even knowledgeable, in a Jewish world, knows that, knows <coughs> that Jews don't seek converts. Right? Jews don't proselytize. That is, again, I'll have to reread my history, but in my, in my current understanding, until next week, <laughs> that is the product of, and I think we're going to address this next class after Thanksgiving, I think it'll be timely. That is the product of um, uh, when Christianity gains the reins of empire, they brutally suppress uh, Jews who are seeking converts. And so practices come into being then that are now, again, we don't know why tradition started. Uh, let me, this is an important sidebar. Uh, if someone approaches a, a, a Jewish teacher interested in converting, you're supposed to turn them down three times. Right? You're supposed to send them away three times. And if they continue, then you might take them under your tutelage. It's a very reasonable um, uh, explanation of that, is that these, there may have been um, um, informers, spies, looking for if Jews were proselytizing. Then, over time, of course, over centuries, this becomes part of the tradition. And new reasons get made to explain why you need to need, know if they're sincere. But in the last 40 years, starting with the reform movement, really, with uh, Alexander uh, Schindler, Schindler, wasn't that his name? Schindler, yeah. yeah, the head of the reform movement said 40 years ago, look, that was then. Here we are in America. We need to spread our good news. It's time to drop those strictures. And, uh, but of course in the um, very traditional parts of Judaism that it's tradition now, so it's not going to change. So it, that seems to be essentially a response to oppression. Because if we're supposed to be a light unto the nations, then we're supposed to be a light unto the nations. But that got suppressed by, um, by force. And that's why Jews then became a people who did not seek converts. Yes? I wonder if it was clear to Paul that circumcision is such a basic part of the mitzvah for Judaism that that would then be a real separation. Now, of course, if he was politically implied, then you want to get rid of circumcision because you had all these other people who thought a, a circumcision was an abomination. Do we have any information of where this is coming? Because he that would have been sort of like the first thing of pushing away from, uh, from Judaism. Very Do you have any insights about Paul yeah, in that regard? Yeah, he's, but I, he does have a passage about um, whether there's circumcision or uncircumcision is not the point. Uh, do you remember yes. where that is? No. <laughs> That's okay. That's close I enough. It up. But he, because this was a really, really hot, hot, hot issue, and it was about adult 
circumcision. This wasn't about you know having not, not children. Babies, not <coughs> babies, no. um, it it was about people that wanted to come to follow the way because it wasn't Christianity yet. Um, but he does talk about that. It's not about circumcision or uncircumcision. And then there's a lot about the law he writes about as well. He said he talks more about the law <coughs> in your heart. Um, he says. You know, whether you're eating food that's defiled or undefiled, the, the more important thing is that you don't offend the people you're with. And he says, so what I try to do is be all things to all people. When I'm with people for whom, who are going to be uh, scandalized. scandalized by my eating this or not eating that, I do what makes them comfortable in terms of hospitality. But I... But that's not really the point either, but I don't want to scandalize people. You know, he's, he seems to be moving, in, in, even in his thought, into a new way of living the law on a level that isn't... Um, he wasn't... Just a let, 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 let her finish. Well, I can't find the word. Um, he wasn't pushing for a new religion. Paul? I, I don't know. I, I don't understand Paul well enough to know that. And I, I haven't studied Paul yeah. in depth. Um, but but, but I, I don't have anything to add to that. Please, nice and loud. My understanding from what I've read, and again, it's an amalgam, like you said, my opinion this week. Um, he, Paul had a thing going with Jerusalem, and he needed to have... Jerusalem's approval, and yet he couldn't have it with the Gentiles with, in order to put the covenant from. He did have a disciple who he himself performed a circumcision. So I would think that viscerally he had something really, we can't do this. Because mm -hmm. so, he actually performed one in order to comply. He had a disciple who said, okay, go ahead. <laughs> so, um, uh, yes, Joy. Paul is very much leading towards non-dualistic thinking. When Paul sends these letters out, he always says, you know, like, I'm a sinner, I've done these terrible things, I know, and then he always tries to give that other way, in other words, not the way that says we're inventing the thing, but that actually Jesus is going towards the more spiritual understanding of the action. Mm -hmm. And that then gives him a kind of authority. When you read the letters of Paul, you see that he's already committed to something a little bigger in consciousness than the others say that he's dealing with. And that is that non-dualistic thinking, that way Nicely of saying... Put. And yes, and that doesn't he also right? say something about circumcising the heart? Well, yes. that comes from, is he, that comes from um, Book of Deuteronomy. Of course. Yeah, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, circumcise your heart, cut off the sheath from about your heart, so that you may love with all your heart and soul. That's the sort of thing right. so that, they're all saying Jesus was saying. Right, so um, what I'm getting from this, it, it, as we put all of our puzzle pieces together, um, <laughs> is that it was probably just as unclear, uh, so many competing ideas and thoughts and forces in the first century, because even though... Um, the uh, rabbis, the Pharisees, the rabbis of the first century who didn't follow Jesus, who are my spiritual forebears, um, insisted that the covenant needed, 
was was this was our I don't know if you know this, but Judaism describes it as our marriage contract with God. Yeah. Which, what's important about that is that it's, and even though it comes from a time when marriage contracts were, were not egalitarian, right? Uh, the, the, the God is the male in the marriage contract in the rabbinic imagination, and Israel is the, is the, is the female, is the wife. And, but it's a contract. And, the, the, and in a marriage contract in Jewish tradition, the, uh, the, the husband promises to support financially, sexually give pleasure to, and um, let's see, parnasa, kakala, no, uh, anyway, to, to make sure the wife's taken care of, right? She's not, an, she's not in, a, in the Jewish marriage contract, the wife, though, of, le- of diminished legal status is, is not uh, property. Does that make sense, everybody? Uh, that's why many scholars see the, the Jewish marriage contract, which was given to the woman as her protection against an abusive husband, so that she could show it to the authorities if he wasn't fulfilling his conjugal responsibilities, um, uh, as a, a step forward um, in, in, uh, in human rights. That's an interesting subject. What I'm, hold on, Jerome. I, I'm getting way late, so okay. I'll just finish. Hold on. Because it was seen as a marriage covenant, it was based in love, and uh, not just based in economics. And uh, it also, and so, by understanding it this way, the rabbis understood the relationship between God and Israel to be a relationship of love, and this movement towards non-dualism, towards was happening within rabbinic Judaism in the same way. In other words, we are so inclined to say, well. Paul did it this way, and that's what was unique about Paul. And I'm suggesting that these were all ideas that were in the mix, popping up in various ways, and, in, and those who opposed those ideas, both within and without uh, these movements. Jerome? Just curious, do, do present-day Jews for Jesus follow circumcision? The Jews for Jesus? The Jews for Jesus are a, a, a movement that started in the 60s. Uh, Moshe Rosenbaum, what was his name, um, who saw the light and uh, became a Christian and decided that, uh, that Jesus was, in fact, the fulfillment of Jewishness. And um, I have no idea. I have no idea. Yes, Sharon? Yes, we assume that. For both texts, that says things are going to evolve, things are going to be interpreted, and there's going to be history pressing on this. It's okay. We're going to adjust and evolve in not just looking at our text like it's the answer. We're going to say next week we may have another opinion. Where is it in there? That's the ledge demand. That's the that's the fancy footwork of the rabbis who say the Torah is infinitely interpretable. So they have a written, they have the written holy books and the rabbis say, and it's not just the words 
as they appear, but also the spaces in between the words and the decorations on top of the words and, and, and they make the text. They both, they have their cake and eat it. They say, this text is the word of God and it's infinitely malleable. But they don't say out loud the way we moderns do. This is a human product and we can continue to evolve and interpret it. They do that anyway without saying that they're doing it because that wasn't the way you did it. If it had antiquity and you know, great, great authority, you couldn't, you couldn't openly say, well, that was then and this is now. And so assuming that the new uh, Bible came from the old one, does it say it in there too, like that? Or but it doesn't, hold on, okay, okay. It doesn't say it. But the spaces in between? It doesn't say it in there. Um, it's how the rabbis interpreted it. And the rabbis are in the Pharisees. They're the same thing, the rabbis and the Pharisees. And so Jesus was apparently a Pharisee um, and talked and argued and debated with them about the interpretations of Scripture. Judaism, one of the beautiful things about the rabbinic method is that no, there is no final interpretation of Scripture. There's one that's accepted and considered authoritative, but as you probably know famously, in the Talmud, which is the great compendium of interpretations of scripture that, that Judaism produces, they always include multiple opinions and they always include minority opinions. So the Jewish way has always been what you'd call multivocal. Um, and that's why when you imagine the first century, you can imagine a multivocal community debating interpretation. Um, yes? The Jews of the time picked up the Christian, uh, converted, in other words, or became Christian as compared to everyone who wasn't Jewish. No, we have absolutely no, no idea. No, what no, we what know is that there was a sect of Jews starting in the late first century who considered themselves followers of Jesus, in, right? They were Jews who considered themselves followers of Jesus. When in some fuzzy amount of time, it became clear that the followers of Jesus were behaving in a way significantly different enough from the Jewish community to not count as members of that covenantal community anymore. They became, started becoming known as Christians, or they called themselves the way. Followers of the way. Followers of the way. And so Christian, there's some. called Christians was derogatory. Oh, Christians was a derogatory term. Yeah, Go ahead, Sue, you two. Sue was gonna say um, I lost my train of thought. Okay. Well, it's okay. Grab me when it comes back. All right. um, so we can't, we don't have a date. We know that some Jews were drawn to this interpretation of Judaism in the first century that felt that Jesus was the Messiah. And at the beginning of the class, I laid out how that might have not been so far-fetched for Jews, since there was already this idea of a supernal man. But there was no en masse conversion going... No. It was like, I sort of picture like people sitting around at home arguing, and maybe some members of the family went one way... Absolutely. ...went another way. Absolutely. I was just wondering how quickly was it adopted by Jews? Not, Not quickly. They were all Jews. They were all... Yeah, yes. Oh, no. Non -Jews. No, 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 no. Well, we have to speak, if we're talking historically, you're asking a question for which I have no answer. Okay, that's 
and we don't know, and it started as a Jewish movement. Right. Right? Just keep that in mind. At some point, it became different enough in their behaviors and practices to be separate from the Jews, and a competition ensued by the end of the first century that was like, those heretics and those heretics, right? But earlier, not so. Stephen and Diane? I was just going to say, was it also true that, at that in, those, in that time period that the Christians were really horribly oppressed by the Romans? Um, and there was a real horribly oppressed by the Romans. It wasn't considered a legal religion in those early years. I'm so. still in the first century. As time moves on, both Judaism and Christianity are harshly suppressed by the Roman Empire. And uh, 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 we can talk more about that. Judy Christianity develops this identity as a, an oppressed group uh, and a beleaguered group, even after they gain the reins of, and, and of power. Religion, you know, even right, yeah. right. Yes. I don't see this as so different from what may be happening today. It just takes time when you're in the middle of it it doesn't seem, you know, when you don't know where you're ending up, it doesn't seem like a major change is happening because it's evolving. But, right. you know, Judaism is very, very diverse. And very there diverse. Are, there are groups of Jews who are very opposed to other groups of Jews <laughs> and really think they're going the wrong way. Right. It is fair to say right now that... Uh, there is an irreparable rift in the Jewish world between the ultra-Orthodox Jews and the non-ultra-Orthodox Jews, I should say, uh, because we are completely unacceptable as members of the covenant in their eyes. And so uh, that would have been true then, too. And in the Muslim world. What else is new? Again, I, I want to talk about you know, we're going to talk about religion, but anybody here who grew up in the socialist or communist movement, right. how many factions were there there if you weren't ideologically pure? And, you know, you hated, you hated the, 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 the World Workers Party more than you hated um, Eisenhower, you know, <laughs> because, because they, they were so close to you. It, Judaism and Christianity was a sibling rivalry in all these stages of development. So, to circle back to... Oh, yes, Gail. I mean, it's not just that, the way you put it, that um, the ultra-Orthodox think, think that we're unacceptable in the covenant. We, a lot of us, think they're completely unacceptable. Yeah. Um, but you're not considering them not Jews. Are, are you? They consider us not Jews. Hmm. Right? The ultra-Orthodox, the really ultra-Orthodox, consider the Chabad movement to be not Jewish, but to be heretical. Because, yeah, because they're talking to... The, so, but that's a whole other conversation. But At the moment, you're, I just think of them as extremely misguided Jews. But in another 50 years... Right, but Diane's point is that we're in, whenever, whatever, whatever we're in the thick of, we don't know what the outcome's going to be, nor can we draw clear, clear lines. And that's part of the point I was trying to make about Messiah being an already a spiritualized concept in the first century. So I want to turn to now for a few minutes. Did you remember what you wanted to say? Yes. Do you want to say it? Sure. Um, 
uh, many years after, well, first of all, um, when you read the New Testament, it gives you the impression that Jesus died on Sunday and on Monday they, they were all organized. And, <laughs> and many Christians, I'm sure you could raise your hand, some of us, um, you know, they, we, we are completely oblivious to the idea that there were decades of development before their thinking was really beginning to take form. And when I say beginning, it wasn't until the end of the 300s that the doctrine of the Trinity was established. So it was a long process and an inchoate one in some ways because, they, as, as Jonathan was saying, people, they were being inundated with Greek philosophy and how did that um, shape their basic Judic, Jewish beliefs. That, I wanted to say that, and also when Paul, I mean, when uh, John wrote his gospel, we think that was around the year 100 um, CE. And uh, it seems, I mean, I'm just thinking, I mean, every time you say something, you're quoting some authority, and we don't know how reliable, I mean, how really responsible they are. So I'm going to say what I've read, but I can't tell you, and this is the last, you know, this is really unimpeachable scholarship, but um, it seems to be the case that when John was writing his gospel, the way he writes it, it makes it, he, he projects back to Jesus's day that um, Jesus's followers were being excluded from the synagogue. So we know that wasn't true, and we're thinking, okay, well, Paul is taking what was happening to his people and retrojecting it. Huh. But in fact, um, that wasn't, there is not evidence that that was happening. And um, what's, what one, I think, really reputable scholar says is, um, it, was a, it was a tug of war over legitimacy. You know, I, um, and it was, Paul was, I mean, John was still involved in the synagogue and uh, as a Jew, I mean, he identified as a Jew, his people identified as Jews, and um, they wanted to create an identity that made them stand apart from the rabbinic Jews. So, um, as far as I can see, at the end of the first century, the Jews were, it was all Jews, and there were the Jesus followers and the rabbi followers, and... And some other groups too, possibly. Many, uh, but those are the two main ones we're aware right. of. And um, so John was fighting a rear guard action, so to speak, to try to keep his people together and help them to have an identity over against a much, you know, they were the Jews, they were the, the Pharisees, were the bearers of the, the rabbis, of the tradition. And he was this little offshoot group trying to, to say, look, we, we... Thank you. And uh, I'll recognize you just say, remember that at the end of the first century, the Jews were still climbing out of the rubble of the destruction of the Second Temple and the decimation of the Jewish people. So that both groups also were scrambling in, intensely in other ways. Yes? And it's also Thank worth you. 
they would say that because that, John was saying, you Jews, and so this started a whole anti-Semitic, the seeds of anti-Semitism later when he was trying to distinguish between this little group and the, the rabbinic Jews. And of course, they were all Jews at that point, but that's what you know later Christians would point to to say, oh, these people are demonic or whatever. Right, right. thank you. And in, uh, I think, uh, I hope you can come in two weeks, Susan, uh, uh, because we're going to address that in the next class. Gail? So I'll just repeat, there was a large Jewish diaspora. Paul was from Tarsus, which was on the North African coast, right? No. Turkey. No. Turkey? Turkey? Oh, he was from Turkey. That's why he went back. He hung out there a lot, didn't he? Um, but Alexandria, Carthage, Rome, uh, you name it, there were established and large Jewish communities all over. Gaul. And Gaul, that's right. So, so, um, what, yeah. so just as part of pieces of the puzzle. The Gospel of Mark most likely was written in Rome. So they were, he was, and that was written about 70. So he, whoever John Mark, Mark is, the first Gospel, was not in Jerusalem, but was still affected by the destruction of the temple, the siege of Jerusalem, and, and but, but he, he writes about it, but he, he's, a, he's, he's in Rome, and kind of merchant class, the language is very merchant-oriented. Um, it's, it's not um, literary, it's, it's merchant literary. John's Gospel, a couple decades later, that's the Joannine community anyway, is in Ephesus, that area in Turkey. So already the Gospels being put together are already in the Mediterranean basin around. It, it's not happening just in Jerusalem. Susanna, and I believe Matthew said that you can also read each gospel as a reflection of the community it emerged from oh, yeah. at the time. Oh, yeah. So, so part of the question of what the separation, how, when, how, and what were the interactions, it's also going to be different depending on the local... Geography. That's right. Geography. So that All of it. Mm -hmm. So complicated. And the Roman Empire was a very cosmopolitan empire with good postal service, good roads, you know. <laughs> so, well, I mean, that's an important thing. There was an incredible amount of discourse amongst different parts of the empire, but there was also, it was also a sprawling empire where communications took a long time. Uh, did you want to say yes, something? Yes. Um, you said uh, <coughs> 10 minutes ago that the two groups by the, by the year 100 were accusing each other of heresy. And I wondered if you could be specific about what their accusations against each other were. All I know, I don't know much about it, except that in the daily prayer, the prayer that called the Amida, the Shmona Esri, a ninth, which means the 18 benedictions, a 19th was added which was against heretics. So it had been around so long that it was called the Shmona Ezra, which means the 18. So it was, the name never changed, but it got a 19th. <laughs> and the assumption is that it's speaking 
it's uh, the minim. Min, min is sectarian. Uh, so my limited understanding of this is that that prayer may have been added by the rabbinic Jews in their prayer. It says, and to the informers and to the sectarians, let them have no recourse or hope. So from the wording of that blessing, I've just sort of guessed that it might have had to do with the early Christians who are also at that point, look at the Gospel of John, maligning the rabbinic Jews terribly. Does that make sense? It makes uh, sense, it, and yet one of the scholars I've read says that it's not at all clear that 19th blessing was added at that time. It could well have come in later. Good yeah. point. So the, yeah. that, that's all I know. Yeah, this, I mean, this makes it sound rather more personal rather than specific doctrinal religious beliefs. But I think it was personal. I think it was a family feud. Uh, I think the doctrinal stuff... Be, that's how I started. I think the doctrinal stuff becomes more important later as a way of enforcing what had become a just an intractable family uh, debate about uh, uh, the way I like to say it is, Dad loves me best. You know, no, Dad loves me best. You know, and then it just we're off and running for forever and ever. That's kind of that, the, um, yes, Anne, and then Amy, and then I want to go on. This is a history uh, question. History question. A couple of uh, weeks ago, you mentioned that one of the reasons for the success of the huge expanse of the Roman Empire was that when they conquered a country, they allowed it to keep its own culture. Yes. And I remember that from, from <coughs> reading history. So, if that's so, then what made Rome so down on the local so, religions? No. So uh, successful? No, no. What what made Rome come after the Jews so hard? Oh boy, that's a good question. And the Christians. Do either of you have a, 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 a sur surmise about that? I think part of it is um, Both Christians and Jews could not, I mean, if, if you were going to get a job in, you know, with the Roman Empire, <laughs> you had to uh, make a pledge acknowledging the divinity of the emperor. And neither Jews or Christians could do that because we have one God. But other countries that they... Other countries were not monotheist the way the Jews and the Christians right. were. If right. you're a monotheist, right. you can't accept paganism. Paganism was what made the Roman Empire work. Add another god to the pantheon. The pantheon. Right? And so the common explanation that I was raised on in my courses was that it was because uh, the Jews um, wouldn't do that and wouldn't accept the Pax Romana the peace of Rome, which was the agreement that we'll pay our taxes, we'll put a statue of the emperor in our pantheon and pay tribute to that, to that and uh, you'll let us go about our business more or less, unless you happen to need uh, a lot of soldiers, in which case you'll force us into uh, labor or, uh, or uh, army service. 
Um, right? It was, you know, this wasn't like, this was what it was like. So um, that's my understanding. Um, and that the Jews essentially were unwilling to do that. So it was It was, I'm sure it was partly taxes, and, I'm sh and I assume also from what I've read that it seems like Jews and God-fearers, remember who they are? May have made up up to 10 to 15 percent of the population in the Roman Empire. Remember, there were Jewish communities everywhere, and they were seen as a fifth column, also as a threat to Roman authority, because there were many Romans flocking to Jews, Judaism, and then to Christianity as an offshoot. So there may have been those reasons, too, for the suppression of Jews and Christians, they were seen as a threat to the Roman order because they would not, they, yeah. so there were a lot of possible reasons. I think those are reasonable. I, the Romans were nothing if not pragmatic and they had a very strong right hand. But in their pragmatism, <clears throat> they allowed the Jews a special dispensation because they paid their taxes. Right. And that's why they established the Herodian, you know, the, they established that. But they did it, but they built uh, uh, over the temple his, uh, a palace just to remind the Jews, we're on top. But for the longest time, there was this allowance. Thanks for reminding us of that. Yeah, because right. the Jews that's right. would never acknowledge Caesar as a god. And remember that the Christians were Jews at the time. So, yes, I forgot about that. And again, I, I apologize because I'm not a student of this era, but the Jews but, had a special dispensation from Rome. That's right. It wasn't until this whole upheaval at the time that Jesus was crucified as a Jewish king, okay, where um, this whole, the movement of the zealots got to the point where the Romans said, enough. Yes. Yes, at some point they said, we just have to crush this. Amy, um, and then Gail. Could you She's been waiting a long time. Could you clarify, um, and I know Gail in other class, classes that you went over this, but I'm a little confused about um, the Gospels. These were the disciples of, Jew, of Jesus who wrote after his death. How were they different from one another? Okay, so this was a topic of an earlier class. Were right. you here that day? Yeah, yeah, I know it was. Just, just remind me, because we were talking about it, to, you know, just to um, clarify it. So could you do that in a nutshell? Yeah, the four Gospels aren't necessarily direct disciples of Jesus. Um, they each have a different flavor. They're from different places. They have a different point of view, and they're talking to a different group of people. There's so different people followed them at different points of time. They were written in about a 70, 80, 90, the 30-year period. Um, like uh, Mark was written around 70, Matthew and Luke maybe around 80, and John maybe about 100. But, you know, there's still latitude in that. Um, Suzanne, I think I can add something to yeah, ask that you that help. might be helpful, which is when do they become the New Testament? Oh. Oh. Years, three how many years? Yeah. How many? How many? How much time later do you think they become authoritative? Well, 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 such a good question. I have no idea. Yeah. So it was a. We went through a canonical process, just like the rabbinic in the rabbinic time. There was a canonical process. A lot of meetings. 
<laughs> a lot of sitting around the table. Is the Song of Songs going to be in, or is the Song of Songs out? Is the Song of Songs, you know, an erotic love poem that you sing in a bar, or it is, is it the Holy of Holies? <laughs> so and we did the same thing. But it's later. It's hundreds of years later. Okay. Is that, that when the Gnostic Gospels were pushed out also at that council? Yeah, and, and it has to, Matthew explained this really well, having to do with what was in use at the times. So right, often uh, um, the, the texts that predominate are because the people who are following that version happen to live in Rome and not in like Yennevelt, you know, not in, um, uh, uh, the, the, uh, not in the Egyptian desert where the, where the Gnostic Gospels are being taught. Or so, Accord. Huh? Or Accord, New York, or whatever. <laughs> so, so, um, we, we know, for example, that there are two versions of the Talmud. Now we're moving ahead to like the 600s. But as an example, there's the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud found itself, the, 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 the rabbinic schools there found themselves in the main city of the golden age of Islam. Right? They were in Baghdad and its surroundings. And this is after the collapse of the Roman Empire. Whereas the Jerusalemites found themselves in a backwater of the Byzantine Empire. And so one can say that there's nothing su inherently superior about the Babylonian Talmud versus the, the Jerusalem Talmud other than the luck of, of history. And that may be true about the Gospels too. It may have been because in Rome they, were re they, they had these preferences as opposed to those. We don't know for sure. It was not necessarily people sitting around a table saying this in... This well, I'd like to just bring this up. As you know, there, there were many, many Gospels circulating in those uh, early centuries, uh, well, maybe century, but yes, yeah, centuries. Um, and I often wonder, well, suppose Constantine had never adopted Christianity, and thus there would be no canon, and we'd have all those different Gospels cir circulating, and they're so different. Some are extremely, uh, you know, mystical, and others are, as the ones we have, are extremely not. And um, just think how, how different the world would be. Yeah, right. And some are very, very weird. Two. Yeah. <laughs> Two bars. Yeah. Yeah. Gail, you've been waiting. No, I, I just wanted to say a little something more about Rome and, and Judea. Because, you know, Rome began to um, rule Judea much more directly um, around a little before the beginning of the first century of the Common Era. And unfortunately, the governors who were appointed became, they were increasingly both incompetent and, and corrupt but incredibly corrupt. So Rome actually called a couple of them back because they were so bad, which meant that they were taxing more and more. And, um, and yeah, the Jews were a protected people because their religion was so ancient. But then you got Caligula, who in 39 CE wanted to put a statue of him as a divine right. in the temple, which was another bit of rebellion that then happened. And then, Increasingly, the people were getting poorer and poorer because I don't really understand this, but the area has switched increasingly to a money economy instead of a barter economy, and farmers were being forced off the land. They couldn't yes. pay. They simply couldn't pay both their tithe to the temple, which was 
and their taxes to the Romans. You had an increasingly even homeless population or migrant population. Right. A recipe for rebellion. A recipe right. for rebellion. And part of it had been kept staved off by Herod, who had these incredible building projects. And that may be related to even Jesus being a carpenter. Mm -hmm. But that there were, although he comes later, but it's, you know, but there was a great need for artisans which kept people somewhat employed. And then when he died, which is I think three BC, something like that. Herod. That all Herod, that all stopped. Mm -hmm. And so there were the poverty level had really gotten huge. And throughout that first, you know, until the destruction of the temple, there were at least, I think, eight, nine different messiahs who showed up claiming to be messiahs. I don't want to say this respectfully know that. Um, but who were claiming to be messiahs and who were trying to foment rebellion really against Rome. And then, just before the temple, uh, the final piece of it, the head of the Roman troops had stolen money from the temple treasury. He'd stolen, he'd emptied the treasury. And that was the beginning of the final rebellion. And that's when Rome said, that's it. Was that that's Bar Kokhba or? No, no, no seven, in the year 66. But I mean, yeah. it was a constant, it was an area in tremendous turmoil. And the last other piece of it is that, which I never knew this until recently, is that the Romans appointed the high priest Yes. In this period. So the high priest, by definition, had to be somebody who went along with Rome, and they were incredibly corrupt at that point. Yes. So that there was Roman involvement in the religious piece of it. The Romans even kept the garments that the priest wore and wouldn't release them if the priest wasn't going or getting along with them. So he couldn't even do the ceremonies. You know, so there was. It was humiliating. Yeah, there was such complete humiliation, both economically, religiously, spiritually, and there was a constant foment. And so it was Rome at some point said, "Enough, that's it. We're just going to wipe you out." Maybe. But meanwhile, they were crucifying people right and left as rebels. Thank you, thank you. So I want to recognize Bob, and then I want to change the subject with your indulgence. Things go by so fast. Yeah. You mentioned the Babylonian Talmud. Talmud in the same sentence with the capital of Islam. Yes. But Islam came later. No, the Talmud is codified at about in the seventh century. I didn't know that. Uh, right, right. It covers, as Rabbi Ira Eisenstein said, four hundred years of minutes of Jewish meetings. But six uh, hundred. BCE, the Talmud. The Talmud is a rabbinic product. So it's in the 6th century, uh, 7th century. Islam, Islam comes into being in the 7th century. Yeah. And then Islam spreads like wildfire, and uh, the influence of the Babylonian Jewish community spread with it. That was, that's what I wanted to explain. So I think what I want to do is... Um, I was going to talk about the messianic idea as it develops in Judaism, but we can save that because I think what I want to do is, starting with asking Susan and Suzanne, a question came up at the end of last time that Jews had for Christians, which is, what does it mean when you say Jesus, you love Jesus, or Jesus is your... Oh, no, I'm changing gears completely. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, what, is it, what do you mean... Now we're going completely into subjective heart territory. What do you mean when you say either I have a relationship with Jesus or Jesus Christ is my savior or 
or, or, and there's not going to be a right answer to that. But boy, that's a question a lot of us have been curious about. And I wonder if we could see where a conversation like that takes us. Would you be willing to extemporize on that? Mm. Why don't you go first? Yes, Bill. <laughs> but we'll go back to the messianic discussion. Not today. Okay. Um. And I'll give you a private tutorial if you need it. <laughs> The, there was um, discussion right from the beginning of what do we mean by Son of God, and and I'm uh, you know early early followers of Jesus trying to define what they what they believed and what their experience was, and and so I'm I'm by no means on top of the whole discussion, but I know that some people were comfortable as am I with the formula that in Jesus you see what God would look like if God were a human being. Mm. And then others take uh, different points of view. But that's, that's been an issue right from the beginning and not a settled answer. And, and now, but I'm leaving history for a little while <clears throat> and going totally personal. Uh, in other words, everyone take a deep breath. I want to change the subject. <laughs> We'll get back to history. But I want to ask a different question. Um, what, what does it mean to be a Christian to you? What does it mean to have accepted that name for yourself as a description? And how does Jesus, the, how does Jesus Christ figure in that for you? Would you be willing to just speak about that? I would, and perhaps Suzanne would. <coughs> Will we also hear? And then from I want to hear from others in the room too. From Jews also. Sure. Mm. After you, Suzanne. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as I have the floor, I'm taking the floor. I'm taking the floor. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I I want to say something first. I'm going to change the subject. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say how moved I've been over these weeks by what we're doing in this room together. And I see it in my imagination as this tent of presence. We're in this tent of presence. And what we're doing here is so tingling. I mean, it's, it's, um, uh, so a, a rabbi a priest and an imam <laughs> go into a bar. <laughs> Except it's probably not a bar, it's probably more like an inn or a cafe. And you're in 12th century Provence. And you're going along narrow alleyways and you meet together and you sit at a table and, and you sit down together and you say, let's talk about the Divine Holy One. And then you talk. This happened in 12th century Provence. It was a time in history when Jews and Christians and Muslims got together and talked about holy things. And it was a great time of influence, uh, influencing each other, in particularly in terms of prayer and mysticism and relationship with the divine. And it also happened in a, in a little bit later in in Andalusia in Spain. And um, there's this wonderful book called The Ornament of the World, 
how Muslims, Jews, and Christians created a culture of tolerance in medieval Spain. And it's a beautiful, beautiful book. And again, as a student of Christian mysticism, the mysticism that arises in Spain a couple centuries after this time in Alusia, in Andalusia, particularly in Avila and Toledo and other places in that area, is a direct result of, again, Christians, Muslims, and Jews being able to get together like we are getting together and working out this stuff, like this what if this and what if that, and here's a piece of the puzzle and here's a piece of the puzzle. And that's why I think what we're doing is creating this holy space together that's absolutely, if you stand back from it a little bit, it is marvelous in our eyes. It's yes. just so I just want to acknowledge. Yes. And, and keep what? changing the subject. Go wherever you want. Okay. May <laughs> so, I add something? Add, add something, and then we can talk about Jesus. No, no, stay there. Um, I just want to add on to what Suzanne is saying. I don't know how many of you <coughs> would agree with this, but I feel as though what we're doing here is um, something a model that could be extended yes. infinitely, you know, even possibly into political discussions. But the idea of of just um, hearing about your differences, not trying to reconcile them, respecting them, that is a concept that I feel as though we're enacting, and it's very profound. Yeah. I just want to note, yeah. historically, <clears throat> you talked about this time in Andalusia and this time in, in, in south of France, but historically, what happened after those times is the antithesis, <coughs> because you have the expulsion in Spain. Oh, I know. Isabella and the and, yeah, it was So, you know, there may have been a beginning of discussion, but... Yeah, right. Right away. Uh, Almost instantly. Laura, I wouldn't call it a beginning. I would call pockets where right. this possibility emerged and was realized for a period of time. Where sanity ruled. And it was a beautiful <laughs> thing. But I think people Quickly. are people. And I think even cavemen with the same thing. There were those that you know, got together and said, well, we're using symbol and metaphor, and you know, here we're just, and then others that were, you know, yeah. I just think human beings have been human beings for ten thousand, thirty thousand years, and you know, we're just. But there are because there are pockets of time, and because we today can create this space of holiness together, is is just a wonderful, beautiful thing, and. Um, I'd hate to bring the negative into it, saying, well, you know, we're going to walk out the door and then we're just not going to be like this anymore. Yeah, but that's the Jewish way. Just remember, just remember, every silver lining has a cloud. <laughs> now, that's the other, the Jewish joke is Jewish telegram. Start worrying, letter to follow. <laughs> But I, I'm, do you want, do you want, I just want to get back to his well, question about what does it mean to say you believe in Christ? Okay. And I'm going to preface it in a very risky way, <coughs> the risk of being thrown out of my ear. I was raised very Jewish, uh, you guys are bad, and when I got old, it wasn't until I was well into my 20s, that's old, 
before I realized it wasn't them that just hated us, but they didn't like each other. <laughs> it, it took me to get married to someone whose family didn't like each other because one was Catholic and one was some other thing. I was like, whoa, are you kidding? You don't like each other? I thought you just didn't like us. So <laughs> then um, because it was very confusing, and that's where meeting this, and that's why I came, um, I studied the Course in Miracles for two years with a bunch of friends, very much <coughs> page by page underlining, constantly saying, I don't believe in Jesus. What the heck is this? Went to the bookstore and said, uh, if this isn't the Christian section, I'm not buying this book. I said that to myself. And I went there and I said, where's the Course in Miracles? Is it in the Christian section? And she said, no, you know, it's in a section all of its own right in the middle of the floor here. And so I had to buy it. So I worked for two years after spending years doing the Jewish thing. And at the end of that, once someone said, just forget about what the words are and, and get into what the ideas of it is, I could actually leave there and still be Jewish, hopefully, and still say, I understand that I have the Christ within. I feel like if I meet a Christian person, I can honestly say, I get who you are to some degree. Um, because most people don't know who they are anyway, but you know what I'm saying? And, and that having the Christ within is like what you said at the very beginning. You know, you were either first day, second day, third day, these are the things that happened in the first thing, and then the next one was you were the clay, you know, or you're both those things, the spiritual thing versus the more physical thing. And having the Christ within, to me, became a very uh, spiritual and valid and totally okay thing. What do you see it as, having never had all that Jewishness first? Okay. <laughs> let, let, I'll be very, very personal. Okay. Um, One of the ways that my brilliant children just justify the fact that their mother is a Christian <laughs> is to say, well, you know, if she was born into a Jewish family, she would be a rabbi. Um, and I think that's true. I happen to have been born into a Christian family. And so I grew up with these symbols my, my family wasn't particularly religious. In fact, my mother was anti-religious, um, but she thought it was good for us to get a, a religious education. I think she was disappointed that <laughs> it took. <laughs> but, um, but, but I also think that my brain and my DNA, and I, I was born with a religious vision. My very, very first memory before I had language was a religious well, it was a consciousness mm. and, and awareness that later in life, when I did have language, I could sit, look back at being on my kitty car. I've told Susan this story. My kitty car in the backyard and having this opening, this revelation of consciousness, um, that later I had religious language for that and said, oh, well, that was my first memory, and it went from there. I did describe a couple weeks ago when I talked with you how it was very hard for me 
with a mystical consciousness that began developing in my uh, teenage years, then to, um, and I felt like I was being drawn into a religious path. I had to choose a religious path. I chose Christianity because that was my milieu. Um, but having a mystical sensibility, which is one that, again, I think it's brain. You know, I, I, this isn't a choice. I think it's just the way that my DNA and mitochondria, my whole, you know, my being developed. Um, with a mystical sensibility, you have a sense of the oneness. And I was born into the sense of divine connectedness of everything. And therefore, when I run into Jesus, Son of God, I had major intellectual problems with that. So a lot of my period of studying in graduate school and studying for the priesthood um, was extremely difficult for me because I could never figure out where Jesus fit. So this is just a disclaimer, you know, that it's not like, Jesus is my friend. <laughs> like, that was, you know, that, it was really, really hard for me. What made me, and this is, this could be misinterpreted and embarrassing, but um, what made me sort of begin to understand the Christ as something other was I fell in love inappropriately with one of my mentors. <laughs> I was a married woman with little kids, and this guy, this priest was really, really nice to me and mentored me along, and, and I just was, you know, not fully developed, and I just... <laughs> but I loved him so much that that love sort of translated into a conceptual idea where I could think, oh, I, I think... I can get this. I mean, there's, a, I, I love this man, this untouchable, you know, like, there was never any, you know, uh, inappropriateness, only in, you know. Only he, in your heart. It was, <laughs> I, I lost it in my heart. <laughs> but, um, but it sort of helped me over that, that problem, and then I began to look at the Christ as the cosmic Christ. Mm. At first, I had to separate the Jesus of Nazareth that walked the dusty roads with the cosmic Christ of the universe. Mm. And then, as my own life and my own spiritual life began to um, integrate more, and I had less mystical experiences, more integrated experiences, then Gradually, the, the Jesus of Nazareth that walked the dusty roads and the Christ of the cosmos began to make sense of me, sense to me as a kind of unity that I could embrace. That doesn't mean that it was easy or that I could keep that thought going. In fact, there was, I believe I told you about it a couple weeks ago, a period of time even after I was ordained, where I was afraid, you know, that I, it was Lent and I had to preach the resurrection and I didn't believe in the resurrection and this nun sat with me for four hours trying to get me to a point where I could preach the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Um, so, 
but I am there now. You know, I have sort of that second childhood of understanding. You know, you go through, the intellect goes through um, stages of, of opening, and then you come around to the, the original story again. And so I'm back to the original story, I think. Um, a close reading of the Gospel of Mark for me has helped me understand Jesus and love Jesus in a way that was not possible when I was younger. Now when I read the Gospel of Mark, I see, um, you know how in Hasidic stories often, every once in a while one of the Hasids will try to force the hand of God, you know, and will go to some prayer extreme and, you know, <laughs> to get the Messiah to come because things are just so, so, so bad. I think, I see Jesus as this kind of Hasid that is trying to force the hand of God. And in the Gospel of Mark, which is very, very um, direct and immediate and step by step by step, I see a Jesus that gets angrier and angrier and angrier as he embraces the promises of God and he sees disease and heartbreak and oppression and um, poverty. And, and as, as Jesus, cons Jesus consciousness is getting wider and wider and wider through the Gospel of Mark because he becomes more and more open, and you see this happening in the Gospel of Mark, I think this is a very angry man who adores the divine and is in some kind of mystical, deep relationship with the divine but wants to force the hand of God, and he goes to the crucifixion, doing this. And even on the cross, it's, you son of a bitch, no? This is a Jesus I love and embrace and follow, you know? You son of a bitch. That's who I see in the Gospel of Mark. And he goes all the way to the cross. And I think this energy of forcing God's hand um, may or may not have made something happen beyond the grave. Wow. So if you say you have Jesus in your heart, does that mean um, all that intellectual thing or the vision that you saw when you were on the wagon in your backyard? Uh, that's too simple. Yeah. Um, there's there's a lot more, and in, in in my struggling relationship with the person of Christ. Yeah, ongoing. And then yeah, ongoing, and then um, I don't even know if I can. That was beautiful. So maybe I should leave it there because there's a lot. Of oh wow. So, do do you want to talk a little bit after that? After It's, it's each of our own, if we're going to say what it means to us, then we're going to get 50 different statements around this room, and that's a living tradition, right? Both Jewish or Christian. That's the beauty of when, when we decide to move beyond, and I don't mean this, you can tell I love history and I love theology. And then there's the place where, our, uh, where we share our experience, and that's all of it layered together. There's no, you, can't, you can't tease it out. Uh, Amy, I just want to know if, if Susan does want to speak a little. 
Yeah. No. no? Okay, she's clear. This is just a, a kind of um, a segue, and it may not happen today, but the same question is, you know, why do Jewish people say, we love Torah? I love Torah. I mean, because I, I have heard that same passion coming from Jewish people. I don't happen to have that in me. I don't know what that means. And so uh, it would be a very interesting thing to compare that, those two passions. Carol, you want to talk about that? Um, yeah. Um, first of all, I, I want would you would you would you be willing to stand up while you talk? Sure. Well, I have many people in back of me as I have in front of me. I know, but they'll be able to hear you better. Okay. Um, first of all, thank you for that because you speak in a way that I can identify with across the board. So, so your angry Jesus can be my angry Moses or Abraham or Rebecca. Um, and, and I, because without those people, I would have no place. If, if, if we're not fighting back, I don't understand. If we're not, if we don't want something more. What, there, there are two things, because I can tell my story if you really want me to, but um, what I'm thinking is what continues to be in my way. And one of the reasons I am so grateful for these classes and and, and actually many of the things that are happening in my life right now that are kind of taking me beyond Judaism is this real experience of being called a Christ killer as a child. Ah, good. I'm glad you bring that up. And, and so always between, not personally, not when I'm, I mean, it's not in my mind when I'm talking to you, but if, if we're here in this situation, always this terror comes up. Very, very much like the terror that's, that's out in the world right now. So, And I, having been aware of this for many years, I have worked, I have really worked to let it go. As I work to let go of the separation I feel between Orthodox Jews and me, I don't want to. I don't want to feel separate from anybody, and so I have to notice where I do um, before I can let it go. I think what I'm. I think what I'm hearing you say, Suzanne. is the particular who we are grows up with a language and a culture that has names for things, and names are important. But we're all describing the same thing because we all live in the same world. And and if that is the opening, that's where I want to go. I don't want to give up my language. I love my language. I, and I had to learn that I loved my language, too, because I didn't always know that. And I, and I have studied hard, too. Um, but I think that's, 
But the gift that you just give me is, oh yeah, I know that experience. I recognize that relationship. And here's what I call it. And, and, and if there are differences, it doesn't really matter as long as we can get into the essence of the experience. I, I wanted to say before, when we were, just as we were coming to the end of the history, part of the discussion is that it's one thing to, and, it's very, and very important, to identify the history. But we're talking about religion here. We're talking about God and spirit. And it has to be more than who wins, which group wins, and how hard they fight to win. There has to be Whatever, whatever that is underneath. So I, I was very grateful that, that, that we switched at that point, because I was, I was just getting to, I don't want to know this anymore. Um, I think that's what I want to say. I, as, far, as far as, the, should I, I don't know if I should keep talking. Um, uh, Let other people talk. Okay, I, I, I think Suzanne has something else to say. Okay. Suzanne, you were standing up? I can tell my story. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I don't want to leave the impression that my take on the Gospel of Mark and how that um, is, is, is sort of my answer too. It's one answer, but one thing that, well, another way that I'm able to practice the Christian um, discipline is that the story of Jesus is the hero's journey. And it is this mythic, fundamental human truth, I think, of, of at least what humans aspire to. And again, I think this goes back to caveman. It's not you know, relegated to Christianity. But the Jesus story, which we follow through the year, which also describes the mystical path toward union with the divine, is one of when you follow the Jesus story and his life from his birth and then his teaching and then his death and then his resurrection and then the ascension and then to the coming of the Holy Spirit that kind of pulls it all together, which happens for us on Pentecost, um, it's, it's a story of apotheosis, what the Eastern Orthodox call deification, and that in participating in this story and walking in this story through this cycle, uh, we are walking toward what Christian mystics used to call um, union with God. But it's really an integration into, I mean, walking into our, the fullness of, the wholeness of our being and image and likeness of God. And that by walking in this path, we come to our, our place as human beings as, well, without saying it wrong, divine creatures. And so that is the other part of Christianity that, that I value so, so much. It makes me cry. <laughs> it just makes me cry. But again, I don't think it's unique to Christianity. I think what makes Christianity... Um, 
resonate with people when they kind of see that image is that that story of the deification of the human being is, um, and of all creation, I mean, it's just, you know, we can't be like, it's, it's, it's everything, the deification of everything, that we are sacred to begin with, is coming to that knowledge um, through this story. And the story is one that resonates from something that's so deeply, deeply, deeply human. So I wanted to say uh, that. I, I want to share something. And I bet you do. Well, <laughs> I love when Suzanne said that she's in her second childhood. Uh, which you can only get to if you've been through every phase before that, right? It's not, it, and that means every phase before that is legitimate. But the second childhood uh, would be, uh, I'm sure jo Joy knows where I'm going, would be where you can just enjoy the story. Yeah. Yes. After all you've yes. heard, all you've thought, all you know, all the wrestling, all the questions, all the doubts, all, and you've integrated them all, and they, they, they live within you, but now you're ready to hear the story again. It's like a beginner's mind, but without giving up any of the hard-earned everything that we bring to it. That would be what I call a mature faith, and, um, or, or a mature anything. And so, yes, for me, the, the, the Jewish story, the cycle we walk through through the year, from slavery to liberation, is everything to me. That's my, I'm walking that story. I'm walking from, uh, I'm on my way, to the, I'm on my way to Freedom Land, right? That's my story. And, um, and I celebrate it, I tell it, I live it, I eat the foods to remember it, I da-da-da-da. And um, when you get to that place, it's not about who's right. Um, but the wrestling that Suzanne described, that was, is, it's the only way you get from here to there. You wrestle with it enough until you've integrated it into your own being and participated. So I was just really moved by the way she described that and about the way the Jewish story, it's my story. Uh, I've just, I, I didn't see, did I decide? I don't think I decided. Uh, circumstances conspired uh, through birth, through education, through happenstance, through that I honed in on this. This was my story, and this was the story I was given, and then it became my story uh, uh, over time, and I want to pass my story on. Um, that's beautiful to think about. Susan? There were two so I'm so appreciative of what we're sharing here. And for me, and I don't know what's on the syllabus, but for me, I love the sharing and I love the coming together, but there's such history that to me needs healing that if that could be included somehow. It's on the syllabus. We are yearning. We are yearning. To be to be together, yeah. and yet yes. this this there course is, is called Judaism and Christianity: shared origins, different paths, and we wouldn't have you know. Yes, we need to have that conversation. So it's on the syllabus. In yeah, fact, I'm going to suggest that uh, the next thing on the syllabus is we explore the emergence of Christian anti-Semitism, its origins, and have what will be, you know. <coughs> 
I, as you can tell, I wanted to, I wanted to interrupt that flow so we could return to our hearts here. Uh, but we're going to go back to that. Yes, yes. We have time for two more comments. One, two. Well, for a long time, I felt that the different religions are different paths leading to the same place. And so when I hear you talking about Christ in your heart or Christ consciousness, I don't have any problem with that because to me it's just semantics. It's just a question of getting to that place where we feel some um, mystical union with something beyond ourselves. And I think there's so many ways to describe it and I think our culture has gotten so hung up on the name, the label, my label's better than your label. But really, to get to that experience, I, I do feel they're all one. Yes, that doesn't contradict Carol's experience of being called a Christ killer on the streets of New York. Well, in order for, to get to the oneness in a genuine way, right. we need to navigate through what's happened to us in our lives. Friends, it's already 2 o'clock. You, your hand was up. Well, what I want to say is I prayed for this and God answered me because I've been in and out of love with Jesus throughout my life. Mm -hmm. I remember, and, as, and I don't know whether I'm a Christian now. Uh -huh. um, as an adolescent, Jesus was my love. And I went through Roman Catholic um, education through university to the point where when I went back to my convent school, Father Confessor wanted me to come into the philosophy department and teach logic. And I said, you know, I've been to parade. I don't know that I can be back down on the form. <laughs> and he said, well, I said, but I can teach the party line. He said, oh no, people, the parents are sending their children here to, to, to and I was like, you know, I can't do that. And again, in and out of love with what Jesus represents for me, what Susan said is the connection, my connection to the deity is through this human being. And, and what else is he? What else? Because I am that also. You're also the mystery, the, mystery, the infinite mystery. And, and I, again, this, 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 this is a prayer answer. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. So I can't recognize any more uh, speakers today. Um, uh, Monday night. I, Can I throw out a poem? Uh, uh, we're going to close with a poem. With your indulgence. If anyone has to leave, don't go. Okay? Uh, Monday night is the Woodstock Interfaith Thanksgiving service. We do this annually. It's at what time? It was in our email. I believe it's at 7, and it's at St. John's Roman Catholic Church in Holly Hills uh, uh, today. Okay? Um, next week is Thanksgiving. May we all give thanks uh, for all the blessings in our lives. We won't be having class next Thursday, obviously. Uh, I'll be leading services here the Friday and Saturday of, next, of Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, the 20... Whatever that is. The uh, uh, 27th and 28th. Uh, on, in the week of December 1st, uh, we'll, the, the last of our prayer series, Entering into Jewish Prayer, is happening. And you can certainly find out about that. We'll meet again in two weeks.
Um, and um, on December 11th to 13th, during Hanukkah, Carol Fox Prescott and I are doing a retreat that will work for Jews and Christians alike called The Torah of Broadway, Spiritual Wisdom from the Great American Songbook. That's going to be, you know, a, that was the, the secular religion, those songs, those albums we had in our living rooms. That's, that's what I was raised on. And the songs are magnificent, and we're going to mine them and sing them. And that's all, anyone's welcome. You, it, it costs money. You'll see, you'll, see the, uh, you'll see the flyer in the lobby. I want to thank uh, Susan and Suzanne for, for stepping in at the last moment yeah. here. Yeah. And Matthew, I missed that. Uh, he has a teaching engagement that, that he, he knew about long ago. And uh, this class is going to meet three more times. And then, I, I don't know, we'll, we'll determine what and if we want to do again or next. Uh, so thank you. Thank you, everybody.